0: The year is 2018. A mass shooting kills 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, reigniting the debate over gun control in the U.S. The Trump administration issues a zero-tolerance policy against people who cross the border illegally, causing over 2,300 children to be separated from their parents. As part of their campaign against Obamacare, Republicans in Congress tried to cut funds for Medicaid, the main health insurer for adults and children with disabilities. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Martina Mayoke's Cost of Living, a drama that challenges stereotypes about people living with physical and emotional disabilities. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to all the drama a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Although not yet 40, Martina Mayoke is one of the best playwrights working today. She's also one of my favorites. And that's because her often humorous but always deeply serious plays focus on immigrants, people of color, poor people, and in the case of cost of living, people with disabilities. They're all the kind of people who usually get pushed to the margins in American society and on American stages. But they're the kind of people Majok knows intimately. She was born in 1985 in Bytom, a town in the southern part of Poland. She came to the U.S. with her mother when she was five. She grew up in New Jersey in a working-class community where people came from all over the world but found the same kind of low-paying jobs, working in factories, cleaning houses, and taking care of other people's children and elderly parents. Mayoke began writing plays in high school, partly as a distraction from a sometimes chaotic home. She went on to study theater at the University of Chicago and later honed her playwriting skills at the Yale School of Drama and Juilliard. To supplement the scholarships and fellowships that paid for her education, she worked odd jobs that included bartending and providing care for disabled adults. Her theatrical breakthrough came in 2016 with Ironbound, a portrait of a tough-talking immigrant woman who struggles with money and men. Simultaneously funny and poignant, it won rave reviews. The New York Times called it a perceptive drama with bone-dry humor and vivid characters. Just one year later came Cost of Living. It opens with a monologue and a bar, but the main story alternates between two couples. One, a graduate student with cerebral palsy named John and his newly hired caregiver Jess. The other between an out-of-work truck driver named Eddie and his estranged wife, who's been paralyzed in a recent accident. A believer in inclusion of all kinds. Myoke walks her talk. Her script for Cost of Living insists that the characters with disabilities be played by actors with disabilities. The original cast included Greg Musgala, an actor who has cerebral palsy, and Katie Sullivan, an actress and para-Olympian who was born without legs below her knees. The show had an extended run at Manhattan Theatre Club and won the Pulitzer the next year. The judges hailed it as an honest original work that invites audiences to examine diverse perceptions of privilege and human connection. My yoke hasn't slowed down since winning the prize, Her play, Queens, ran for a month at LCT3 in 2018. It centers around a group of immigrant women who come from different countries, but are forced to live together in a kind of makeshift dormitory in Queens, New York, because it's all they can afford. New York Theatre Workshop's production of her latest play, Sanctuary City, was in previews when the pandemic forced theaters to close last year, but it officially opened two months ago. It focuses on two young people brought to this country when they were children and their struggles to realize their visions of the American dream. Its brief run ended on October 17th, but the production is now available to stream, and you can check out the show notes to find out how you can do that. But in the meantime, stay tuned for the great conversation I had with Mayoke about her Pulitzer Prize winner, Cost of Living. Hi Martina, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to have you here and uh, to talk about uh, Cost of Living. And I want to start off by asking, do you remember how you got the news that the play and you had won the Pulitzer? Oh
1: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I was supposed to to go to jury duty that day. So my day began at eight in the morning going downtown to the financial district and I was not chosen for <laughs> jury duty. So I came back home. Uh, it was around like th- two or three o'clock and I w- was just starting to do my taxes because they were due the next day. Uh, I have since become way more responsible and have hired <laughs> an accountant, but like <laughs> that I was like, oh man, I'm going get these done. And um, around three o'clock, my agent called me and he was like, "You won the Pulitzer," and I was very upset with him. <laughs> and then I, um, I, I, I cursed a lot. I'm not sure if I can curse in the podcast. You, you can. But why were you upset? Well, because I thought he was fucking with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was April, and so I was like, "Ah, oh, man, he's probably, you know, he's just fucking around with me, saying like in one of the," po- and I was like, "I oh, was like, how dare you? You know how much this means to me. Like sometimes this is a huge life changing thing, and he's laughing his ass off." You know, and I was like, I, and I, I was Googling it all at the same time and nothing was coming up because I didn't realize that they, they live streamed the announcement. So, of course, there was no writing when I was Googling like immediately after. So, again, I thought it was because he just kept, you know, taking me around. Uh, and he was like, why don't you give it a minute and wait? And I bet you in like five minutes you will find out that you did indeed win the, the pollster And so I, I was like, fine, fine, fine. And I hung up and I saw I had 12 texts and the first one was from Steve Natalie and I was like, oh shit, (laughs) I think it's real.
0: And then I partied all night. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about the play a bit. So many of your plays are drawn from uh, your own experience, your own past. What was the genesis for this one?
1: I came from a few different places and it definitely wasn't like a clear line of this is the I, this is what I want to be writing about. I think there's, I, I said that there's two types of plays that I've written so far. There's ones that come like right from the front of my brain, almost in a dotted line to the page where it often takes me a really short amount of time. Like Ironbound I wrote in five days and Sanctuary, so it took me three days. No. Well, yeah, those are great. Those are great when those happen <laughs> Cost something was not that. Cost of Living was like one of the plays that I like say comes from the back of your head, and you it's uh you're kind of constantly reaching back there to find what else might be there. It, it doesn't arrive kind of fully formed, and so that play was a I didn't realize I was writing a play. It was a process of writing various different pieces that I realized were speaking to one another, and the first piece that I wrote was that opening monologue. I mean that I think the whole play came. From me dealing with a lot of economic insecurity, this my first year living in New York, my husband and I, when we moved, we were hopping amongst 13 different apartments. Like we didn't have enough first security deposit, and so we were just we were hopping from place to place. At the same time that that was going on, I had just lost one of my closest family members, and they had passed away in Poland, and I didn't have enough to go. To see Hmm. him in his last moments and to see and to like be at his funeral. And then on that day that I began writing the monologue, I had gotten fired from my bartending job because they thought I had stole $100 and I didn't. But I wish I did because I still got fired for it. So it was like a January, blizzardy January Saturday night, and I started writing in, in, I think I realized it was later, later on I realized it was the voice of, of one of my friend's fathers that I knew growing up. I think, it, I, mean, I think what was coming out of that was my desire to see the ghost of this person that had, that had, that I had lost. Mm. And so it came, out, it came out in that voice, and, and then I put it away for a while, and, and, and incrementally during the course of that year, wrote some of, some of the scenes that, that ended
0: up going into Cost of Living. When did it evolve that s- central characters were going to be people with disabilities?
1: I had been asked. To write a play about employment for for EST, I was in part of Youngblood. They would have these these ten minute play festivals, where where like you got paid like twenty five bucks or something to like write a short play, and I was, <laughs> as you know, it was a really tough time. So I was like twenty five dollars, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and so I I wrote about a job that I had done. I've been a personal caregiver for two men. Um, with disabilities when I was living in Chicago Uh, Hmm. and so I pulled from those experiences not the not like I didn't fall in love with (laughs) either of them so I I sort of pulled from that circumstance to create two different people I had then later on wrote another short play for EST same thing for Tim at Play Festival and there happened to be a character who, who also had a disability in that short play and I realized that that was the wife that the man in the monologue was talking about that and then that meant that he had lost her. And so I was like, oh, I think they are the same people. And I linked the two of them into this play. How I knew they both had to be in the play was when we performed the play that had John and Jess in it at EST, I was, sort of, I was surprised by the reaction that the audience had. So usually these 10-minute play festivals, there's five plays, and it's also, it's also um, an open bar. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's like the best audience you can hope for. And the first thing they, the audience sees on stage is this is this woman who is calling out to somebody off stage. I mean, and they were already laughing because I guess it's just funny that someone is talking to somebody off stage. Like, this is how <laughs> this is how very ready to laugh this audience was. And then the character of John enters in a wheelchair and the audience went dead silent. And I was like, oh, fuck. Oh no. Uh and I I just was shocked by that response and I I don't know what what it was. I'm, I think it may may have been that they just they weren't sure if they could laugh. They had been laughing. They all of a sudden felt bad. They didn't know maybe they thought that I was going to make fun of that character. But it was just such a palpable experience that this, and then, and then, you know, soon of uh, John, he ends up having most of the jokes. So they were like, oh, it's so. Okay. They were like, ha ha ha, is this okay? And they would like look around to see if other people were laughing. They were like, okay, it's okay. And he had more jokes, and then it was like signaled to them that they can laugh. So when I saw that, I was, and I realized that I think I made the, the two, the, the two characters maybe in the same play. I, I, I felt that, I felt that they both had to had to be there for. To, in order to represent different perspectives there, in terms of class for being a disabled person in America. Uh, and so I had a, a person that comes from wealth and means and, and somebody who doesn't, and some, also as well as somebody who's born with a disability versus somebody who acquires it later in life. And I didn't want it to seem like there was just one experience uh, same with same with the, you know the other Im- two immigrant characters, uh, first gen versus somebody you know born here. It was a kind of just wanting to to make sure that there was there was a like a, a varied perspective uh, on that, so it couldn't say like oh this is just this one one way. And so it really had to do with trying trying to talk about class.
0: For me, when I saw the disabled uh, experience was so new and so fresh, particularly as it was uh, presented this way and particularly that the actors who were in those roles were themselves actors with disabilities. Is that a casting requirement for the play?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Has that affected the ability of the play to be produced? Definitely,
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, Theaters have told me that they, they quote-unquote, can't find them. So I have furnished lists for those theaters. I have offered names of people that like have either understudied or worked with me or or various theater companies that are that are that are that are like specific, like for example, family and Deaf West, like have have a have a foundation in, dis- in dis- disability TBTV, And some theaters just seem like they want, an excuse not to have to do that the the work of looking for for people that they may not already know but it so i i know i have lost money for sure <laughs> i've lost productions by by like deciding not to not to go forward with that but it it just didn't kind of didn't feel worth it it didn't feel worth it i i feel like that part of i, I had i had written please cast with actors in the play and i didn't realize what a big deal it would be at the time like i thought it might I, I guess I thought enough that somebody might try to jump that. And I was like, well, let me just, just to be, sh- just to make sure, let me just write this in. And then it, and then I kind of confronted how just how much of an obstacle that was, but it just seemed like that is a community of artists that tends to be jumped over for the chance to represent themselves on stage. And if we continue to jump over that community of artists, then they will never be at the level of like stardom that other actors are. So like, for example, you know, you people want to do celebrity casting for, you know, high profile productions. But if, you, if, if like any of these actors never got their first break, they could not have ascended to the level of like celebrity and stardom that they're in now. And so I'm advocating to like that there are very many good actors who also happen to be disabled that the world should see so that they can, they can you know, this isn't, going to be a, this isn't going to be as much of an issue, I hope, of, of casting these actors who I know exist, (laughs) were very good. So it just seemed completely unfair, and I didn't want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: One of the things that I'm, I'm interested in as I do this series is that there are a number of playwrights who won the award and then were sort of daunted by the award, and weren't able to continue writing or at least continue writing at the level of that award. How, how have you avoided that? You have come out with subsequent plays, really good plays. How were you able to, to block the thought of, I have to be a Pulitzer prize winning playwright? Uh, I think that I always had anxiety about feeling like
1: I wasn't good enough. Uh, and so the award, uh, it didn't it didn't kind of quiet down those demons and the voices that are saying like you know you're not you're not good enough and that is like a daily struggle for me to manage them uh, it helped it helped also that i was also that i was already working on other things i didn't think this play would win the pulitzer that was a nice very very nice surprise <laughs> and then i think i i had thought oh if i won like a big enough award maybe all of my insecurities and sadness and everything, you know, everything that at least partially drives me writing will be mended. And, and it definitely didn't. And I think that was a good thing um, hmm. because it meant that I continued that the drive was to tell stories and to be able to figure out how to live in the world. I think that is essentially why I continue to write, especially for the theater is because I, I have so many questions and, and the way for me to figure them out is through writing and then collaborating with other artists to like get clarity and legibility on like what it is that I have been feeling, what I have questions about and, and kind of just, it's not therapy but it is it is a kind of processing and, and like being in communion with other people about things that are difficult to put into language the awards mean a lot. And I need that validation because partially because of all the, because of also the reason that it drives me to write is wanting to feel like I matter, wanting to feel like the people that I grew up with who I tend to write about matter. And awards can give you the feeling of that as well as sometimes like a little bit of money. So that's just the practical, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful part of awards. But it isn't, it ultimately wasn't the thing that like quieted the drive to to write. And so that's probably what's kept me going. And I I feel like all of the plays have to be good. Like I I'm just so aware that actors are donating their I mean donating, they're being they're being compensated very little for gifting playwrights with their finite lives and their talent and their effort and their memory like asking them to memorize words i write like I, that better be fucking good so that there's there's always like the there's there's a pressure but i think i just look at it as as rigor like i always want it to be worth somebody else's time as well but i also know that if you're striving for perfection and striving for awards it can shut you down or me i can i speak for myself like it, it can the the pressure around pursuing like these tangible things like awards you don't know you have no idea who's going to be on the panel that year like you don't know what else is going to be in competition with you like if i if this was if that was the year of hamilton i, I wouldn't have a bullet there i know that like it's fine it's okay <laughs> like, hamilton was very good like i know i wouldn't have it And it's just like sometimes god the luck of the year you know like that well, the luck of the people people on the panel who happen to like that style or responsive of you know understand what i was going for but it could have gone any other way and i and it's it's kind of grounding to re, to remember that and to then be like well what are you doing it for it's so you know how to live in the world
0: i've read that you are developing queens your your, your uh play queens for television i'm trying <laughs> i hope we don't lose you from the theater Oh my God! Well, thank you.
1: And also, you won't to the to like the disappointment of my managers and, and agents, Like 100%, <laughs> I can't stop doing theater. I can't stop. I love the process of making it so much. And every time, like I tell my managers who are primarily tell you know television and film, they're like, "You're doing what? More more theater? Like, come on!" Uh, I can't. I love it. I love it too much. I love the process. I love. I love like being in theaters. For better for worse.
0: Than good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Let me speak on behalf of lovers oh, of good plays. Good. Thank you for, oh, for so that. Great. And thank, thank you for um, this play. And thank you for talking um, with us uh, about it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.